0: Welcome to Blunt History, a podcast dealing with the history of the war on drugs, told, well, bluntly. We think it'll have you saying, what the F? We're your hosts, Natalie Brennan and Steena Perkins. On this episode, we are lucky enough to have Professor Matthew Lasseter on the show. Matthew Lasseter is a professor at the University of Michigan. His course, History of Crime and Drugs in Modern America, was the inspiration for this show. We pull from documents we used in his class, as well as the independent research I have completed this semester as his research assistant. Professor Lassiter is the author of The Silent Majority, Suburban Politics in the Sunbelt South, which won the Southern Regionals Council's Lillian Smith Book Award. His Journal of Urban History article, The Suburban Origins of Colorblind Conservatism, Middle Class Consciousness in the Charlotte Busing Crisis was republished in the Best American History Essays of 2006. He is also a co-editor of The Myth of Southern Exceptionalism. If you are a University of Michigan student, you must take one of his classes. Welcome to Blunt History. (laughs) Oh, great. Thanks for having me. Uh, We've talked so much about your work on this podcast, so it's really exciting to finally have you on it to talk about your work. But last episode, we mostly talked about the 50s and juvenile delinquency and kind of the way in which that is talked more about as an epidemic um, and how we're talking about white suburban youth. But as we move into the 60s, I'd maybe argue that when we start talking about cities and urban youth, that maybe some of that language begins to change, not towards delinquency, but instead towards... Um, more racialized terms like thugs, we start talking about gangs. Is that racially coded language, like delinquency versus crisis?
1: Yeah, great question. I think in the 50s, delinquent was a racial term that mainly meant African Americans, Mexican Americans, non-whites coming out of World War II. And the idea was, if you're delinquent, it's because you're from... A community with a lot of pathology a poor community and so the shock in the 50s was that white middle-class youth could be delinquents also okay. and you know the official crime statistics rarely showed that white middle-class youth were committing all kinds of crimes too they were just usually diverted in the system and not given records so if the discovery in the 50s was that delinquency is not just about poor and non-white youth it also means white youth that helped kind of decriminalize the Mm -hmm. concept of delinquency a little bit and so what happened in the early to mid 60s is liberals were talking about the delinquency crisis in urban and non-white communities and they lost control of that narrative especially with the racial uprisings and unrest in the mid 60s and instead of delinquent which is a sympathetic term in some ways that says you can be rehabilitated Mm -hmm. you started to see words like hoodlum gangster thug and the racialization kind of jumped to these much more punitive terms right it it always criminalizes non-white youth but delinquency suggests liberal reform has, you know, hope to fix the situation, the other term suggests put people in prison.
0: With the switching in term, then we also see a switching in the way in which we deal with crime. Yeah, so during this time of a little bit more sympathy towards delinquency, there was more rehabilitation efforts towards crime. And then we get into the 60s and we maybe see more of a hard-on-crime approach.
1: Yeah, one of the biggest challenges to figuring out the 60s is how liberalism launched a war on poverty and passed national landmark civil rights laws and also launched the modern war on crime. And the old view blamed the war on crime on Barry Goldwater and Mm -hmm. Richard Nixon and conservative Republicans. And a lot of the new scholarship, Elizabeth Hinton's um, recent book, is particularly important from the war on poverty to the war on crime argues that Lyndon Johnson and liberals themselves in an effort to rehabilitate poor and non-white youth criminalized them to force them into rehabilitative institutions and yet they did nothing about police brutality they did very little about housing segregation in the urban areas they didn't have a broad enough approach to the unemployment crisis. And so they ended up kind of criminalizing the symptoms of poverty and moving toward increasingly punitive responses out of a sense that we tried rehabilitation and it didn't work and look at these riots, look at this outbreak of criminality in the urban areas, we have to crack down. Harder. And the liberals and conservatives alike participated in this.
0: Speaking of the riots, we could get into Detroit's riots, maybe more specifically, since we are closest to that region and you study the Detroit riots. The basis is kind of known that in the 67 summer in July, um, Detroit went into riots leading from an incident at the Blind Pig. An unlicensed bar, how do you term
1: an after hours bar and so a community you know, gathering place and you had a lot, of, a lot of people in there. The cops came in and busted them. It happened all the time. They did a mass arrest and people fought back and, and fighting back had happened you know, a lot too. It's, it's not all that different from the famous Stonewall bust and, and the gay rights movement. And basically um, policing that doesn't happen in suburban areas and so there's resistance to it it's one of the reasons that there's a real debate about whether it was a riot or some sort of rebellion since police harassment and kind of over-policing was the immediate trigger and then people fought back against that which made a lot of people at the time and since ask how much is this a political Um, reaction versus how much of it is a riot, which really means a kind of criminal act, collective act without clear goals.
0: Is that one of the major questions that your new class will be exploring, whether or not the riot should be determined as a riot or an act of resistance?
1: Well, in the crime and drugs class, um, I do a whole week on Detroit, and I asked the students to make an exhibit based on documents from a lot of different perspectives in 1967 and to ask the question themselves, is this a riot, is it a rebellion? How should we understand this historically? The data now shows that a majority of African Americans living in Metro Detroit look back and would call this a rebellion and most whites call it a riot. And that's pretty similar i um, in the late 1960s as well. And if you feel like police brutality is the main cause, then then you're much more likely to interpret it in a, in a political framework. And if you think that black criminality and lawlessness is the real cause, then you're much more likely to interpret it in, in a riot framework. And I, I should mention even middle class black organizations like the Urban League would have called it a riot because they saw the main problem as unemployed, alienated black youth who had not been able to succeed in the modern economy. And they conceded and fought against racial discrimination but they really saw the the problem like Lyndon Johnson and mainstream liberals saw the problem is people need jobs, they need better schools, But they ought to participate in, you know, in civil society and and take the opportunities that they have available. So it's a big debate.
0: When I did some of the preliminary research for the class in the fall, where you're looking into cases of injustice in Michigan that have been covered up, I tried really looking into the riots because I've always heard the number thrown around, that 40 40 died during the riots. 43. 43, around there. and really, there was not much information about the identity of those who had been killed during the riots. So one question that I was kind of left with lingering after, after my research was, have those identities been purposefully hidden? Because those statistics would it put all fault on police officers during this time. I, I just, I couldn't find much information about where the bloodshed was coming from, even though that is maybe the main thing that people want to talk about when they want to want to talk about how violent the, the riots were. It's always usually put in numbers and statistics.
1: Yeah, 42 deaths to be precise, but more than 4,000 arrests. And there's a couple of things you could say about that. You're you're totally right, Natalie, that that in a sense that, you know, there were so many deaths, so many arrests that except for a few high-profile incidents like the Algiers Motel Mm -hmm. situation, which had a book made about it and the the movie recently uh, about Detroit. In most cases, you know, a police shooting today, it's almost always clear who actually did the shooting, Mm -hmm. but many of the um, African Americans who died in Detroit during the summer of 1967, nobody knows. You know, it's just like, Shot, the police are not identifying themselves. You know, the the situation is more like a military occupation of the city, and it's almost like casualty of war. Right. It's not clear who actually did the did the shooting.
0: Yeah, in some of my research, it seemed quite purposeful. Um, as you just mentioned, with police not identifying themselves during the riots, there was this obstruction of justice in which. I don't know if, like, the Supreme Courts were allowing this or if nobody was just bringing it to the courts, but Detroit had created the Complaints Review Unit after there were a lot of complaints about police brutality, but in order to um, submit a complaint, you needed a police officer's badge number. During the riots, none of the police officers wore their badge numbers, so no complaints were able to be submitted. Um, Similarly, all of their license plate numbers were taken off of their cars during the time, and so it seems like in periods of time in which there seems to be like an an epidemic or a, a riot, we kind of skew the laws a little bit in an effort towards getting things back to law lawsome and orderly.
1: Yeah, that's a good point. So there's a couple of things that maybe say about that. The there were a there were a dozen or so um, people killed, black people killed that they did know the The officer and basically uh, no investigation or just pro forma investigation in the 50s, 60s into the 70s. It was almost unheard of for the Wayne County prosecutor to charge any police officer for any crime, no matter how uh, against civilians, no matter how many complaints, wrongful death, you know, cases against police almost never happened. I mean, it rarely happens now. Right. It never happened. happened then back then. And then you had a martial law declaration, which means almost anything goes and the courts are really reluctant to intervene. Another thing that happened in addition to the removal of the badges and the license plates is many of the people who got arrested were just arrested under a containment strategy and they were given extremely high bail that they could never pay just to hold them in the jail until things had settled down. So, you know, an unconstitutional, you know, effectively um, a detention policy without probable cause, without, without any charges, and just being held on suspicion, suspicion of being a loot, you know, suspicion of being a sniper, yeah. um, looting kind of things. And arrests and detention were part of the pacification strategy, in addition to the show of force.
0: In my research, I found that the only judge who did not um, use this bonds procedure to uh, keep rioters in jail was Judge Crockett, who did happen to be black at the time. But it seemed like the overwhelming majority were turning towards this idea of like a suspension of civil liberties in the name of fighting crime, which maybe we see over and over again in the war on crime and drugs when things are either sensationalized by the media Um, or by an administration that we are now in a crisis, that you can get mass public opinion towards this idea of getting hard on crime.
1: Yeah, I'll give you an example of something that happened in 1966, a year before the riot. So there was a famous um, and extremely not well-known, in its correct details, incident called the Kirchival Street.
0: The Kirchival Street? The
1: Street Riot. And what happened according to the Detroit Police Department, is that black radicals rioted in 1966. The Detroit police came in with a major show of force, suppressed the riot, and then they went all around the country talking about what a good job they had done and how they The police
0: officers. Yeah,
1: the the police department had stopped a riot. Ah. But if you really look into the evidence that's kind of hidden in plain sight in various databases and archives... What really happened is that there were a group of anti-police brutality campaigners who had loosely formed around Wayne State University and other radical circles, and they were being investigated by the Detroit Police Department in a kind of local version of the FBI's COINTELPRO program. And the Detroit police were harassing them and arresting them for things like loitering and congregating with conspiracy to riot when they demonstrated politically against the police and so the police started harassing these men who were political activists in the kerchival street incident and they protested and then the police arrested them all and went and bragged to the <laughs> country that they had stopped the <laughs> riot Did in a good progress job. and you, that's the kind of like circular reasoning which is criminalizing activists who are protesting police criminality and brutality and then blaming <laughs> African American neighborhoods themselves for the arrests and the and the crime problem that's the kind of circular reasoning that helps lead to a sense of crime and lawlessness being out of control in black neighborhoods all the way from you know the Detroit Police department and the mayor's office up into national politics.
0: You mentioned COINTELPRO. I can't even pronounce COINTELPRO. it. COINTELPRO. Was that a federal program? Was that a local level program?
1: So COINTELPRO is a FBI um, program to surveil political radicals that goes way back decades, and it began as a investigation of communists members of the Communist Party, it expands under J. Edgar Hoover Mm -hmm. into investigating subversives, which is defined so broadly as to mean anybody who's against the quote-unquote American way of life. And it's effectively a a, a program of suppression of political radicalism. They did investigate the KKK, but almost always it's against progressive groups. Martin Luther King... Jr., Stokely Carmichael. Stokely Carmichael, every anti-Vietnam War group, many feminist organizations. that So the FBI would often work with local police departments, like the Detroit Police Department or the Los Angeles or the Chicago Police Department, to harass uh, political radicals. And the Black Panther Party, which was probably the leading national black power group protesting police misconduct, found itself a major target of... CoIntelPro, and the most uh, infamous incident was Fred Hampton in mm-hmm. Chicago, where the FBI conspired, really, with the Chicago Police Department to murder um, a civil rights and Black Power activist who was protesting police brutality, and they just shot him while he was sleeping, and you know, m- murdered him, assassinated him, and later later had to pay out a multi-million dollar lawsuit for wrongful death. And COINTELPRO lasted into the early 70s, and it was an exposed subject of congressional investigations, and the FBI has never really come to terms with its role in COINTELPRO. If you look on their website today, they still call the Black Panthers a party dedicated to the violent overthrow of the U.S. <laughs> government, which is just propaganda, Right. Not a not a, really a... Compelling historical interpretation. But the worst excesses of COINTELPRO got exposed in the mid-70s in congressional investigations.
0: So it's hard to say that the 1960s was a turning point of criminalizing of black urban youth because throughout the US's history this has always been a constant. But is it maybe more fair to say that the sixties is a turning point in which there's more federal funding and blatant programs like Count Pro, or next week we talk about stress and we start talking about the LAPD and um, the, P- the SWAT team that was created from there. Do we see this as like a national funded time in which criminalization becomes programmed, funded?
1: Yeah, that's a great way to look at it. So there's nothing new about racial over of black youth, of non-white youth, of poor people in urban areas. Non-whites are getting arrested on drug charges um, way in excess of their actual drug use rates for a long time. Criminal justice programs over concentrated in particular neighborhoods and then they produce the problem that they're trying to solve by having so many police that you have so many more arrests. That's That's all been going on for a long time, but you really identified it. What changes in the 60s is that the federal government gets involved in crime control in ways that dramatically accelerate and starts pumping an enormous amount of money into local crime control programs like STRESS, which is a federally subsidized program of the Detroit Police Department, like the SWAT teams in Los Angeles, and, like, anti-gang efforts in New York City in the 70s, and that is a legacy of liberalism. Mm. Conservatives were more reluctant to spend tens and millions and hundreds of millions of federal dollars on crime control programs, although Nixon did support a lot of them as well, but it was liberals who believed that the crime problem could be solved as part of the war on poverty and as part of civil rights, and anti-delinquency reform and rehabilitation that said, let's fund local police departments, let's fund all these social welfare institutions. And once they set that ball in motion, then the urban uprisings of the mid 60s come in. Liberalism cannot handle black radicalism and and they move increasingly toward punitive crime control policies alone. Then Nixon gets elected. He continues the crime control program and drops the focus on rehabilitation and social welfare. And what's left is just the crime control program itself as the main urban program.
0: Which is a bit ironic. Maybe ironic isn't the right word, but thinking through um, the Kerner Commissions was set up by Congress, by Congressman Kerner.
1: No, actually Lyndon Johnson... Um, appointed the Kerner Commission. Kerner was the governor of, of um, Illinois. Of Illinois. I believe. And so he appointed the Kerner Commission to try to understand what had caused the Detroit and Newark
0: riots. riots
1: in the summer of 1967, and more generally the kind of pattern ever since Harlem in 64 through Watts in 65 and Chicago in 66, and to say... What caused this? What can be done? And Lyndon Johnson believed that that black radicals
0: caused, had, the riots. caused the riots.
1: And, I mean, Nixon says this and conservatives say this, but liberals also blamed it on Stokely Carmichael and other black power activists. And they wouldn't have said that was the only cause, but he really did expect the Kerner Commission at some level to say that there was a conspiracy of militant, black activists to um to cause the riots and
0: But those are not the findings.
1: No, I mean the Carter Commission said white racism is the fundamental cause of the urban crisis in modern America. It was not at all what um what Nixon expected. I found a a document in the archives. It was one of the coolest finds <laughs> that I'll probably ever made that I had never read about before when I was out in California where Martin Luther King Jr. wrote a um, letter to Kerner and he said, congratulations on telling America a difficult and hard truth, which is white racism, not black criminality, not even poverty, not segregation alone, you know, and people would often say segregation just kind of happened he said, "White racism caused it." The Carter Commission said, "White institutions created and maintain the um, the ghetto." I'll quote you: um, King said, "The finding that America is a racist society and that white racism is the root cause of today's urban disorders is an important confession of a harsh truth." My only hope now is that white America and our national government will heed your warning and implement. Your
0: recommendations, mm. which I guess is where I where I came in with the irony, because it seems like the nation was at this moment where we could have taken acceptance of what the riots were and what the finding cause was by this more objective committee, but instead this is we see the war on crime and drugs really heat up after this moment. We see uh, maybe some of. Nixon's elected and he says, let's win the war against crime and disorder in 1968. How do we connect this moment in which a commission is coming out and saying the riots were caused by racism and administrations that continue towards this path of control?
1: Lyndon Johnson wasn't happy with the Kerner Commission uh, and... He thought it didn't blame black radicalism enough, but Nixon said that the commission blamed everybody for the riots except the rioters themselves. <laughs> and a large majority of white Americans also rejected the Kerner Commission's mm-hmm. verdict. Then as now, white Americans, you know, collectively are not usually willing to, to um, accept arguments about structural and institutional Racism. racism. Uh, More than four out of every five whites in opinion polls said that police brutality had nothing to do with the urban riots and the civil unrest and uprisings and the Kerner Commission said that is the proximate cause that is the trigger almost every time but the Kerner Commission also said the fundamental causes are segregation mm-hmm. and the institutions that profit from housing segregation and the suburbs that keep non-whites from living there and gaining opportunities to better schools and better jobs, and that the problem, you know, that they they indicted a host of institutions for perpetuating racial segregation, and so the real question was, what would happen, and. All three branches of the federal government, Congress, the White House, the, the Supreme Court, turned their back on the Kerner Commission's recommendations. The civil rights movement pushed hard for integrating the suburbs in the 1970s for having low-income housing, not just being segregated urban areas, but spread throughout the metropolis, for integrating schools, and those generally failed in most parts of the country. And instead, the urban policy that came out of the late 60s was, as you mentioned, the war on crime and the war on drugs itself. Um, attacking the communities that the Kerner Commission argued needed needed the solution of integration and more resources. And instead of more resources, instead of a real war on poverty, instead of a real National Civil Rights Movement. Instead of a real uh, remedies for police brutality, they actually got more of the of the things that had caused the problem in the first place: more over policing, more criminalization, more prisons and jails, more arrests. That's the that's, you know the the opposite of what the Kerner Commission called for.
0: It's easy to reject the information that you don't maybe agree with and sensationalize the information from this time since it was such a public, national, something that was covered by so heavily by the media at this time to sway public opinion towards towards different agendas.
1: Well, when you're watching, you know, a so-called riot on television (laughs) and, and you see violence and chaos and disorder and, you know, maybe... There's a famous scene from Los Angeles Watts in 1965 where they interview a bunch of young black teenagers and they say, "We're gonna come and burn the suburbs down next." And then a an older, you know, black preacher gets on. And is like, "Whoa, <laughs> no, we're not." Yeah. But you know th- that plays into the fears, and you can always sensationalize and find, you know, s- some radical or some frustrated voices and then the Kerner Commission comes along, you know, a long, sober report. Lots of people read it. It inspired, um, you know, activists, liberal, progressive activists at the local level. It, it had an impact, but in terms of um, changing the larger American political situation, I mean, it didn't. What A Kerner report, um, if it came out today about our own time, uh, about policing, would not be yeah. accepted today. Right. And. It, by, by um, a majority of Americans, the, the kind of hard truths about how racial discrimination and segregation operate in society. And it, it definitely was not accepted by a majority back then either.
0: We see the same narratives then and now.
1: There is some openness to, to seeing, um, to thinking about police brutality among a broader range of white Americans, just because so much of it has been captured on video yeah and there's ways that that you know people are rethinking some of the worst excesses of the drug war but the patterns about criminalizing poor non-white urban you know people that those have persisted and the the kind of polarization around how to view the police whether they are you know warriors and victims of of um you know slandering that they're violent or whether the police are are kind of an unchecked force that can literally get away with murder not all police officers but when they do they rarely get prosecuted right. and, and i think the the kind of racial polarization around attitudes about policing and law and crime are um are still around today yeah,
0: yeah. Well, thank you so much. This was so helpful. Next week, we look a little bit more into stress and um, and the LAPD's SWAT team, which we referenced today. So that was a great segue for today. But thank you for appearing today and talking about your work.
1: All right. That was fun. Thank you. <laughs> well, not fun, but important. Important. <laughs>
0: If you want to see any of the documents we referenced in this episode, our sources can all be found on What the F's website in the podcasts tab. Like What the F on Facebook to get notified when we release new episodes. I'm Natalie. And I'm Stina, And this was Blunt History.